Um, let's pray. I want to pray for our country, right? Let's do it. Lord, I just thank you, God, that you're God of our country. We pray for our president. We pray for our governor. We will obey you in lifting them up before you. We ask, God, that you would encounter them. We declare that you are Lord of our country. No one else. No one else but you. God, and I, we pray that you have your way and will tonight in our lives, in our country. God, I pray that this message is meaningful that it brings hope to people, Lord, that we would, um, we would be like the Nehemiahs who would respond to your urging and to your timing, God. And we just love you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys. I'm gonna, did you like the notes that I made for you? You're welcome. Hey, jury can't still be out. I put this on my um, iPad because I'm trying to be fancy. So um, just bear with me, okay? So we had a marriage class last week um, at the Krauses. It was fantastic. And we listened to a video by Gary Thomas. Is that right? Called Lifelong Love. Is that right? And he was talking about um, God as a builder. And we don't often think of God as a builder. We think of him as a king or a savior or whatever, creator, whatever. We don't think of God as a builder or a rebuilder sometimes. And so he was talking about marriage, how if you will give your marriage to the Lord, he will actually build your marriage. Like he's responsible for the building of your marriage if you'll partner with him and if you will um, allow him to do the work. And so it really got me thinking about building. And I love Nehemiah. I feel like a Nehemiah sometimes. I feel like, I don't know about you, but have you ever had maybe reoccurring theme in your life or even dreams that you feel like the Lord has given you about particular things and it's over and over in your life? Have you, any of you ever had those kinds of things? My themes, you may think this is funny and you all know this about me, is a dystopian future, is apocalyptic, is uh, somehow surviving some cataclysmic event and being a rebuilder in that particular situation. It's why I like to prep. That's why I have a couple of months, I think, of food in our basement, right, in the big number 10, 30-year cans and stuff like that. That stuff to me is exciting. It's not scary. It's not fearful. I like to do that because that's how God created me. I'm attracted to the Hunger Games kind of movies and the Walking Dead and the zombie apocalypse and all those kinds of things because there's something inside of me that God made me to be a rebuilder of someone who could survive disaster, if you will, but bring back a rebuilding or um, taking care of, if you will. I always, did you guys watch The Walking Dead ever? Any of you watch it? How many seasons have we watched that, babe? Like four? And then we're like, okay, nothing's ever happening. Nothing's advancing in this story. No one's ever winning. They're going from place to place to settle down is what I want to say, you know? What'd you say? It's pretty dead. Yeah, The Walking Dead. And there was this one season where they were in a Virginia city, I think, and they had walls around it. And they had, you know, I don't know how, electricity and water and, it, you know, in the apocalyptic future. But somehow they had that. And I was like, man, if I was in, if I had this kind of apocalyptic reality, I'd be the governor and Chris would be the man on the walls shooting the zombies as they came up to the gates. Am I right? He would be taking care of business 
and making sure no one got through the gates. But I always thought I'd be the governor and I'd run that place, man. And nobody would get out of line and we wouldn't have this weird rebellion and backbiting and we'd stay there. We wouldn't leave and go out to the rest of the country and have this series go on forever. You know what I mean? So Chris and I couldn't really finish watching that because we were just like, okay, this is not realistic. Of course, it's not realistic at all anyway. But I mean, you know, we just couldn't suspend our disbelief enough. So I'm going to talk about um, Nehemiah. The other thing I like about Nehemiah is Nehemiah is actually a man of action. And I feel like personally I can relate to that as a person of action. It's hard for me. I um, am not usually a paralysis of analysis person. I hope that I've learned to be less rash about my decisions and take more thoughtfulness. But whatever spectrum that is, I am more of a person who like runs in to do something and then goes, maybe I shouldn't have done that, <laughs> you know, and regrets it afterwards. And may, maybe I'm not as futuristic as my husband. Chris is very futuristic, and he thinks about what are the repercussions of the decision. I'm like, let's just do it and see how it works. Let's throw it against the wall, you know, whatever. That's not always the best. But Nehemiah was a man of action, and I relate to that. I feel like a woman of action sometimes. So Nehemiah is part of, um, he's actually born, this is a little bit of background, in Persia. Um, he's part of the dis Dispora. I don't know if I said that right, but he is uh, a descendant of the Jews that have been exiled from Judah. If you remember, there's Israel and Judah, two um, sisters of, of, of one country, like north and south Israel, kind of. Only one's called Israel, one's called Judah. And they were so rebellious against the Lord that he allowed um, Nebuchadnezzar to come in and actually destroy the northern country and then the southern country he actually took as booty so to speak into his country all the nobles of Judah and that's where Daniel comes from right and so all these people are exiled the cream of the crop are exiled from Jerusalem from Judah they're taken into captivity into Persia and that's where Daniel serves in the um court of the king. Now we've got Ezra and Nehemiah. These are descendants of those people. They've never lived in Jerusalem. They've never lived in Judah, but that's where they're from, so to speak, right? They're, they're immigrants, if you will. So what happens is uh, Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer to the current king of Persia, Artaxerxes. Do you like that I can pronounce that? And a, a cupbearer feels like kind of a minor thing, like I'm a cupbearer. But actually, back then, you were the prime minister and the master of ceremonies. You would be a cupbearer. And you also sampled the king's drink to make sure he wasn't poisoned. But you were an important person. It's like not just like you were a servant. You were actually a really important person. And he had a really a posh job. He, that was a, he was an important official, like I said, almost like a prime minister. So he wasn't just a lowly servant. He was actually like very important in, the, in this king's court. And it says that one day he, um, he received, his brother came back from, his, from Judah and reported to him the condition of Jerusalem. The walls were broken down. The gates were broken, and the city was scattered. The city was scattered. Now, Nehemiah is a, the book of Nehemiah is a brother book to Ezra. You guys familiar with Ezra? Ezra is another kind of a contemporary of Nehemiah, and he goes before Nehemiah in the chronology, and he goes back to Jerusalem, and he actually completes the rebuilding of the temple. 
So he feels a call in his life to go back and rebuild the temple because the temple's been sacked. And what happened when kings came in and they conquered your land, the first thing they would do is they would tear down your place of worship. Because back then, they believed that that's where you got your power from. Whenever you went into war, you carried with you your gods into war. They went before you. When Israel went into war, they carried the um, Ark of the Covenant. That was their God carrying God in. And so the first thing that, that the um, Nebuchadnezzar and the Persian kings did is they would destroy the temple and remove all the temple items, all the cups, the chalices, everything that was holy, they would bring over into their treasury and they would keep it. It was a way of decimating the, the people. So what Ezra did was he felt the call for restoration. The first thing he did was go back and he rebuilt the temple. Because I want to tell you something, you guys. When we... And, and I'll kind of get into this a little bit more about rebuilding. The first thing we need to do when something's been broken down is we have to make a place for the Lord to dwell. That's the first thing. In the Old Testament, the Lord dwelled physically in the temple. That's where his physical presence resided, was in the temple. In the New Testament, where does God dwell? Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Inside of us. So when we feel like Maybe there's something broken down or something that needs to be rebuilt in our life. The first, first thing we need to ask is, do I have God dwelling inside of me as in my temple? I'm the temple for the Holy Spirit. It precedes any rebuilding process that needs to happen in our lives. We need to, I, we need to ask ourselves, where is God in my life? Has he become the priority of my life, the priority of worship? Because that is the first thing that has to happen before we can re rebuild anything. You know, as I was thinking about the sermon, I kind of thought about it because of the marriage class we had, and I really liked that theme of building and Nehemiah and all that. And when I was working on it this morning, what it really hit me at, you guys, kind of like maybe Chris was talking about, a lot of us are in a little bit of grief over what we've seen happen in our society, right? And in our country. I mean, we're a little bit of sadness and grief, if we can be honest. Can we be honest about that? Whatever side of the aisle you're on, a lot of us are not happy with what's going on. Whatever. And there's some grief, I think, going on. And I think that this message really applies to us today. I mean, we can apply it to anything. Our marriages, our relationships, our city, our society. But I think particularly, this applies to our country right now. I don't usually ever do anything that's even, like, political at all because I'm a scaredy cat when it comes to that. But I kind of believe that this is a very timely message for those of us who are disappointed right now, for those of us who feel let down or possibly betrayed or uh, just really discouraged, really discouraged. I think this is a message for us tonight, you guys. So we've got in the first chapter of Nehemiah, his brother travels from Jerusalem, tells him that the people are all messed up. They don't have any walls to protect them, and Jerusalem is really run down. And the, the response that Nehemiah has is he's filled with grief. He's filled with grief. And consequently, he decides to approach the king. He says, Lord, this is Nehemiah 111, Lord, let your ear be, no, this is to the, um, I'm sorry, he's praying to God first before he approaches the king. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today. 
by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's talking about the king. Just as an aside, because I know you men will really care about this. Um, it's speculated, this is interesting, it's speculated that the king who he is serving is the son of Xerxes, the husband of Esther. You remember the story of Esther and how she saved her people from annihilation by going to her husband Xerxes and approaching him when she wasn't called and it was super dangerous. This is Artaxerxes, his son, either her son too or his son by another wife or concubine. But this is what you guys will really like. He was probably a eunuch. Because in order for him to serve in the court and approach the king, he could not be not a eunuch. What's the opposite of that? Whole. He could not be whole. He had to be, he had to be a eunuch. Um, and I just think that's interesting because this is a man who's from a Jewish religion. He's got a super posh job. He's, um, I don't know if he's got identity issues because of that. Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe. And he hears what's going on with the people he's never met and the homeland he's never lived in. And he's filled with grief. And he has compassion for what's going on. And he approaches, he goes to the king, and his face is downcast as he's serving the king. The king says, what is it that you want? What's going on with you? Why is your face so downcast? And this is what Nehemiah says. He goes, then I prayed to the king of heaven, and I answered the king. This is what I love. As soon as the king says, why are you so depressed? What's going on with you? He goes, I prayed. And then he asked for the outrageous. He goes, I want to return to Jerusalem. I, I need letters of authority to get me there, and I need a whole bunch of resources. I need um, gold and money and timber and everything. I want to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's a big ask, you guys. That's a big ask. But he ran with it. When he was, he asked the Lord, give me favor. And when the king said, what do you want? He went for it. Now that's a man of action. That's what I like. So the first, number one, what we learn from the first part of the story is that God calls us to rebuild. We're called to be rebuilders. And I I say this because God is a rebuilder, and we are called to model Christ in our lives. One thing you'll find out that Nehemiah, Nehemiah did not do, he didn't complain, he didn't worry, and he didn't step out in his own strength. Anybody here complain, worry, and step out in their own strength when they see things going bad? Anybody here? Anybody here? Nehemiah did not do that. <laughs> Cinda, I don't think you do that, darling. I don't know if you're like me. Like I said, I tend to act first and um, do stuff and pray later. He didn't do that. He was, he was compelled by compassion and grief, but he prayed first. And he asked for the favor of the king, who was in all respects not Jewish, probably not a believer, a pagan king. Yet he waited and asked for, that he would get the favor from the king. He waited. He waited. The second part, our second little fill in the blanks, we are motivated by God to rebuild when we experience genuine compassion and grief for the world around us. Not when we worry, not when we 
fret, but when we feel compassion and grief. Because you know what, you guys? God feels compassion and grief for our broken world, but he doesn't look down at us and say, I'm so mad at you guys for screwing things up. Like, I am so worried about what's going to happen, and I can't believe that you've done that. That is not our God. What does our God, right? What does our God say, man? He's like, man, I'm bummed you got yourself in this position. I'm really sad, and I'm going to hear your cry, and I'm going to deliver you. Did he not do that to the Israelites? He heard their cry, and he delivered them. His ongoing theme in the Bible is how am I going to bring restoration to this fallen world? Guess how he's going to do it? He's going to use you and you and you and you. He's going to use all of us to rebuild what the enemy has broken down. And when I think about our country, you guys, there's some brokenness in our country. There's some rebuilding that needs to be done. But I don't think our solution is to worry and fret and criticize and do everything that is not productive. Our job is to pray and fast and seek the favor of the Lord in this broken down situation. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. The book of Nehemiah paints a picture of God's heart towards our world and gives us a strategy on how to rebuild. In step three, instead of complaining, worrying, or leaning into his own solution, he prayed to God. Like I said, my tendency is to just, do, you know, as a strong personality, perhaps, can we say that? I want to run and do my own thing right away. But what does Proverbs 14, 12 say? There is a way that appears right, but in the end it leads to death. Now, I'm not saying that we can't have emotion about what's going on. Like if we're, in a, if we're in a broken relationship or if we're in what we see going on right now, it is legitimate for us to have grief over that. It's legitimate for us to have compassion over the brokenness. I, you guys, I do mediations, and I have a lot of compassion for the people going through mediations because they're going through a really broken part in their life. And I don't want to see them do that. Like I, I wish I could reach down into people's hearts and say, don't you understand there is a solution for this? There's an answer for this, but I can't make people change, but I can have grief and compassion because that's God's heart for them. That's God's heart. In Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah 8, 21 through 22, since my people are crushed, this is God, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Sorry, I just lost my thing. I told you I was trying to do my technology here. Sorry. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? And in the New Testament, Jesus felt sadness when Lazarus died an early death. He wept. He was sad for what Lazarus was going through. It's legit for us to be sad. It's legit for us to have um, grief over the brokenness of this world. But 
You guys, we have to wait for the Lord's timing sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes we're so impatient and we see we have a righteous anger over things. Chris and I were talking about righteous anger. We have a righteous anger over injustice that goes on. And that is, the Lord has righteous anger. I'm not saying that's wrong. But as we're not God, and as we can't see the whole picture, it's our job to wait for the right timing. It's our job to submit and say, I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. Remember Esther? She prayed and she fasted. And she went to the Lord and she waited for the timing. In the same way, Nehemiah waited for the timing. And as soon as he got it, he ran with it. As soon as the king was like, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Proverbs 21. And like I said, this king was probably not in any way a God worshiper. But let's remember something, especially with the current situation. Proverbs 21.1. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water, and he channels toward all who please him. Guess what? God <laughs> turns the heart of kings, even pagan kings, to his purposes. Again, can I get an amen? So I want you to have some hope right now. You may feel like there's some pagan uh, authorities over us. That, that doesn't escape the Lord. That doesn't, that doesn't mean God can't work in that situation. That doesn't mean you can't get favor from the Lord. But we need to do it in God's timing. When we try to grasp it and take it and force it, it's not going to work. This, I think we're in a period in America, church, Christians, of saying, Lord, lead us. Help us, help us not to react out of emotion or anger or worry or fear. Let us be, we're going to be leaders, we're going to be rebuilders, but we're going to do it in the timing of God. Because it's God who turns the hearts of kings, not violence, not uh, control by people. It's God. Because again, God's in control of us. And even what's going on right now. I love it. Like, he's like, you know, I need timber for the walls, gates. And, oh, by the way, I'm making myself a house, so I need a timber for that too. In fact, what he was really asking for was, I'm going to go be the governor of Jerusalem and the governor of Judah, and I need you to, like, you know, just rubber stamp that. And guess what? He rubber stamped it. He gave him um, an army. He gave him a cavalry. He was so favorably disposed towards Nehemiah. Nehemiah was gone for 12 years. And he was supposedly the prime minister in the land. And yet he got so much favor from this king that he was gone for 12 years rebuilding a country he had never seen before. That's some favor, you guys. Have you ever walked in favor? Have you guys ever experienced the favor of the Lord? Anybody? I experienced it when I worked at The Rock and I was doing, um, this is a kind of a funny story. Jim will really think this is funny, maybe. Maybe Kelly, too. Sometimes we get favor in different seasons of our life, and we don't know why. It's not really because of us, because as Christians, we live under the favor of God. We are positionally in the favor of God every day of our life. But as we sometimes see in um, our lives, there are seasons that you go through where you especially feel the hand of God on your life. And I had one of those experiences when I was doing small groups over at The Rock, and it was so funny because, seriously, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, it was... 
I was just flying, you know, again, flying by the seat of my pants, whatever, you know. But um, I, I ended up where I could kind of go to different churches, and I'd look at what they're doing, and I'd look at their different things. And New Life at that time had this super thick catalog of small groups. And I'm like, well, maybe we can copy that. I mean, we can do something like that. So I put Amber on it or Claudia or somebody, and we'd put together these um, catalog things. Well, you guys, they got so popular that we'd run out of them. Am I right? And it would take like five minutes to print one. So the week before um, these groups would open or we'd have community weekend, we would be all every day in the office printing out these books, printing out these books, printing out these books, you know. And then um, we would have what's community weekend where you'd look at all the different groups and stuff. And Jer would get up, that was my pastor at the time, he'd get up and he'd hold this book up and he'd say, now y'all need to get this book so you can get into one of these groups or whatever. And people would throng to the tables and all those books would be gone the first service. And then we'd run back there in between services and we'd print out a whole bunch more so we'd have some left, you know. But that was a time where there was, people were so interested in that. They would call me a month before our classes would start, and they'd say, what are your classes going to be this this semester? What are you going to have? What can I sign up for? That was an unprecedented time of favor for me personally because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I guess this is working. How cool. This is so neat, you know? And, um, you know, I eventually I got people to run their schedule around my, my semesters, you know, because that's what I do. you got to run it around what I want you to do, you know. But it was successful, it was, there was a lot of favor on that, and it was a season, and it was fantastic. And I'm here to tell you, if God's calling you to do something big, you want that kind of favor on your life. You want to wait for that kind of favor. But every single, right? Give me an amen. All of us are called to a season of that kind of favor, but you can't take it, and you can't make it. You have to wait for it. It's not something that you, that you earn in general. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have good habits and, you know, you can have, um, you know, you can have good consequences for your decisions. But I'm telling you there's a time when God's supernatural hand is on you and you have favor coming at you and you're like, man, it's nothing I did. It's just favor. I kind of feel like we're feeling that a little bit right now, babe. It's not anything we're doing. But God's favor is there. And whenever you're... You have a holy discontent in your life about something like what Nehemiah did. Make sure you wait for God's timing before you step out. Or it might be really rough. It might be really rough. Nehemiah's first priority when he went back. Now, he wanted to go back and restore all of um, Jerusalem. But the first thing he did was restore the walls and the, and the gates, because, and this is number five, did I skip four? Oh, sorry. I'm kind of, did I skip four? When we wait on God's timing, he provides what we need. Yeah, that's pretty self-explanatory there, Sue. I know, right? <laughs> number five, Nehemiah's first priority for rebuilding were the walls because there were enemies of Judah in the land. One of the first realities that we face in the Bible, the very first, first, second or third chapter at the beginning of the book, is we have an enemy in the land. We have an enemy in the land. If you guys aren't aware, we have an enemy in the land. Right? He has many names. 
Satan, adversary, Lucifer, Daystar, devil, accuser, slanderer, tempter, ruler of the demons, liar, deceiver, ruler of this world, Beelzebub, Abaddon, and dragon, to just name a few. Pardon me? Okay, I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> you guys, <laughs> our adversary is real. He wants to take down our marriages. He wants to take down our children, our relationships, our jobs, our country, and our society. I'm sorry, but that's true. We have to have walls in our lives to protect us from what is coming at us. One thing that we talked about in our um, group was the idea of drift. You're either drifting down or you're pushing up. But the idea of just coasting is not real. Is not real. Because the enemy is after us. We're either standing guard against the enemy and being realistic about what's coming at, or we're going to go down. We're going to drift down. Because that, those are the only two options. And the enemy really wants us to drift down. What Nehemiah instinctively knew is that you can't rebuild a culture, a people group, family, or relationship without the existence of protective walls because evil is real and our enemy is real. 1 Peter 5.8, this is the passion, I love this. Be well balanced and always alert because your enemy, the devil, roll, roams around incessantly like a roaring lion looking for its prey to devour. That's a picture of violence, you guys. That's not somebody that's like, hey... You know, it's not just a tempter. So this is a picture of violence. The enemy wants to devour us. We have to have walls up to prevent that from happening. Every good marriage book or teacher will teach the need for healthy boundaries for married people before you have temptations. Not after, before. Chris and I made a decision in our marriage that we weren't going to have um, lunches or dinners with the opposite sex, unless we had the permission of our spouse, but pretty much not so much in general. We just decided that. We were old enough now that we have seen a lot of life, and we know we have to put those kind of protective boundaries in place. We need to put boundaries in place in other areas too, what we read, what we watch, what we say, who we hang out with. The other thing is... Um, and this is, you know, this is kind of hard for me, you guys. Because I've, I've been afraid of offending people. One thing Brian Fenimer talked about was that, remember he talked about those three things. One was that the, gov that the government was going to be shaken. Um, what, was the, uh, what was the second thing he talked about? The third was truth. He said, we're going to have to learn truth. Here's the big attack on us, you guys, is that truth is subjective. That truth is subjective. And I'm here to tell you, Truth is not subjective, and that's a big stand. That's a big stand. Truth is not objective. It's based on God's word. God, now, am I the first to say, yeah, there's people that have interpreted the Bible wrong? I'm the first to say that. But I'm talking about the overarching truth that God is God of creation, and there is no other God. He's the authority that we're going to answer to. And you can pretend all day long that God doesn't exist, but that's not truth. And there, we're going to have to come to a point where we're going to build, re, if we're going to rebuild society, 
We got to do it with God's timing, God's heart, and God's truth. And that's going to be maybe a tricky, tricky wicket there. I don't know. But I know that in order to protect the people that we love, we have to have walls and boundaries that we protect. If you know in Nehemiah, there were three um, enemies that came against Nehemiah. I'll try to pronounce their names correctly. Nehemiah 6, 1 through 4. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. That's just, um, those are the three. I'm going to read the rest of that verse in a minute. These were three, they're actually racist. They were they were Gentiles of different countries, different areas, that did not like the Jews and did not want to see them be rebuilt. So they were constantly coming against Nehemiah, constantly coming against the people. The people were so, um, what's the word, um, harassed that they had to actually build with their swords in their hands. Like one person would build, another person would guard. One person would build, one person would guard. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, you guys, in 52 days. And I'll talk more about that later. That's what you do when people get a vision. You rebuild quickly. That's some hope for us, you guys. That's some hope for us. When we wait for the Lord and we wait for his favor, there can be a rebuilding process that happens almost overnight. When you think about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days, two months, less than two months, that's miraculous, but that's what happens when people have a vision for rebuilding and they have leadership for it. That can happen in our country, that can happen in our marriages, and that can happen in our relationships if we'll pray and we'll wait for the favor of God because his heart is to rebuild and his heart is to restore. And he wants us to partner with him. But my, um, my number six Nehemiah resisted the urge to engage the opposition. Now, we know we have opposition. So the rest of this um, verse is, but they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop? Will I leave it, down to, leave it to go down to you? So they were like, hey, come meet with us on the, we'll have, we'll have lunch down here. And they were, they're planning to, overthrow him or whatever. And he's like, nope, don't have time for you. I've got a great work to accomplish. You guys, we have, a, we have um, opposition that comes at us that is not necessarily people. It can be emotions like discouragement, despair, depression, hatred, irritation. Anything that tries to steal our focus from what God has called us to do is opposition. And how did Nehemiah handle opposition? He did not engage. He ignored them. He's like, I don't have time for you. I have something I've been called to do. I do not have time to listen to you. I think what we have to do, especially with our current atmosphere, is we actually have to say to our emotions of fear and despair and depression and discouragement, I don't have time for you. I'm not giving you a place in my life. You don't get a stronghold in what God's called me to do. I'm going forward with my life and what God has told me to do. Get away. 
And that may mean, right? Amen. Thank you. That may mean we have to disengage from social media. Or, you know, my Epoch Times that comes in through the email. Or, you know, our news or whatever. Or people. We may have to say, I need to stay focused. I'm building a wall. I'm rebuilding a wall. God's called me to a really big assignment. I don't have time to be distracted by you. And that's us talking to our emotions sometimes, right? So he completed this in 52 days. Next week I'm going to talk. I'm actually doing a series. Next week is Brian Fenimore. But, my, but I'm actually going to do this a four-part series on Nehemiah. I thought you guys would be all impressed with that for some reason. That I'm doing a biblical, actually biblical kind of thing. But I want to conclude tonight. You know, Nehemiah had a holy discontent. He saw something that was wrong. Instead of responding out of his own emotions, instead of getting discouraged or worrying about it, I mean, I worry. He was like, I'm going to ask the Lord to give me favor with a pagan king. And the pagan king gave him everything he needed to complete the walls in 52 days. If God did it back then, God can do it today, and we have hope for that. So be encouraged that God of the Old Testament is God of the New Testament. He's well in hand with what's going on in our country and in our lives. We get to partner with him. We get to be rebuilders, and we get to see the success of that if we will not engage our emotions or who comes to oppress us. Am I right? Did you like that, Chris? All right, let's pray. So, God, I thank you so much that we get to partner with you. I pray that every single person here would have a holy discontent, that they would rise up and be rebuilders in your timing and in your strength only, Lord. They'd see great favor and great fruit, and they would be who you've called them to be, Lord. The scripture says that you have prepared good works for us to do since begin the, beginning, the foundation of the world. So every single one of us has a call in our lives, Lord. Let us hear it and respond to it the way that you want us to do it and in your timing, God. I thank you so much for the people here. Bless our week. Thank you for Brian Fenimore coming next week, God. Amen. <laughs>